0: Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the American novelist and screenwriter best known for his 1998 novel, The Hours, a tribute to Virginia Woolf's Mrs Dalloway, which became a New York Times bestseller and won both the Penn Faulkner Award and the Pulitzer Prize. He's worked as a creative writing lecturer at Yale University for the past 16 years, His works appeared in The New Yorker and The Best American Short Stories and his eight novels have tackled everything from the AIDS epidemic in his early work, A Home at the End of the World and Flesh and Blood, to A Marriage Thrown Off Course in By Nightfall. At the heart of his novels and short stories is a preoccupation with the human condition, whether through the intense experiences of love, loss or heartbreak. Today, his first novel in almost a decade explores such themes through the lens of the COVID 19 pandemic. Michael Cunningham, welcome to Meet the Writers.
1: Thank you. Thank you you
0: must be so bored <laughs> of that introduction. Everybody going, and he won the Pulitzer. <laughs> the hours. You know,
1: I'm somehow still not <laughs> bored by, by, by hearing it. I, even after all this time, it seems slightly impossible.
0: <laughs> you write about unorthodox families but actually you had quite a normal normal childhood your father was in advertising
1: I had such a normal upbringing that it probably explains my fascination with other kinds of families though it's funny I've been writing for long enough to have sort of written and lived long enough to feel like my the quote unquote non traditional families I write about are are moving closer and closer to the centre of our notion of who and what families are. All due respect to a man and a woman who are raising their biological children together, I'm not sure if that family is really in the majority anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. You must know Andrew Solomon. I do and his fantastically complicated family arrangements yes
1: yes, i I know a lot of fantastically complicated family arrangements and and have for long enough to understand that these are not better or worse families their alternative is such a tired word, but you know there are fights there's conflict there's nothing ideal about the Non traditional, increasingly traditional family. It's just that it allows more people to be members of mm. families if they don't happen to be heterosexual and willing and able to give birth to their own children.
0: Mm. I know that you've been working with Armistead Morpin recently. And, of course, he has written about the logical family as opposed to the biological family. Right,
1: right, right, right. Yes, yes. Armistead was right on the front lines with what I think he calls chosen family.
0: Yeah. But tell me about your birth family. Mm, Sure.
1: When I went away to college, I invented... An unorthodox upbringing. I don't even remember the details, but I was sort of embarrassed to have been so privileged and cosseted. If I say we weren't rich, I have to add that by the standards of about 90% of the world's population, we were enormously rich. But we had a house in the suburbs and... Of um, Los Angeles? Yes, outside of Los Angeles, and two Chevrolets, and everything was just as it was supposed to be. At the same time, my parents both came from very lower class backgrounds in Gary, Indiana. Gary, Indiana. All I can say is... It's a dead steel mill town. The U.S. has a number of these. Just picture a high-rise Holiday Inn on fire with people throwing televisions out the windows. (laughs) That would be Gary, Indiana. And my parents were the sort of skinny, ambitious, nervous ones who got out and moved eventually to suburban Los Angeles. So on one hand, we were outwardly quite normal, but on the other hand, we were acting normal. We didn't come from normalcy. Mm. So there was a kind of almost avatar aspect to our vehemently nice little house, well-tended lawn two cats and a dog, life. It, it was It was to some degree a pose.
0: That's so interesting because, of course, we see that happening repeatedly in, in your books. Yeah. What was it then, do you think, about that upbringing that made you want to be a painter, which was your first ambition?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as I can tell... The occasional kid from the suburbs or the occasional kid from anywhere who wants to be a painter or a writer or a physicist is mysterious. I, I, I don't... I mean, I, I, I know writers' lives better than I know most people's lives. And they, we, can overwhelmingly to come from sort of regular places. And who knows exactly why the aliens aimed that beam at (laughs) George Eliot and James Joyce? It doesn't really make sense.
0: But for you, was there a defining moment where you thought, actually, I'm not a painter, I'm Mm -hmm. a writer?
1: Yeah, 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 there was. A long moment, a protracted moment, but I got to college and was determined to be a painter, visual artist. And I began to realize, partly from knowing a couple of other students who were quite gifted, that they were focused on the attempt to create something living with paint that I didn't quite have. They thought of little else. They they had a duplicate key made so they could get into the studio at night. And I thought, you know, I seem to have some sort of ability to do this, but I don't really... Have, you know, I'm, I'm Bye, everybody. I, I got, I've got a party to go to. And I sort of started writing without any particular sense that I was especially good at it. But I knew right away... That for me, it it held that gravitational pull. Um, And all these years later, I still, my sense of my ability to do it sort of depends on the day. But, well, mystery number two, for some reason, the prospect of trying to create something like life using only ink and words not even ink is just endlessly fascinating to me as a as a problem and i never tire of that it just endlessly fascinates me that say virginia wolf picked up a dictionary and found the lighthouse in it and then 60 plus years later tony morrison picked up you could say the same dictionary and found beloved in it. Mm -hmm. And that just makes me crazy.
0: You went to Iowa to the fabulous writing program there. You were taught by Hilma Wallitzer, who has been on this program, in in fact. And she was really influential, wasn't she?
1: Oh, hugely, hugely. Yeah. yeah. No, I learned more from Hilma than I think I've learned from anyone. And she gave me the best advice about writing that I I think I've ever gotten. You know, mostly you kind of teach yourself how to do it by doing it and doing it and doing it. But one day she pulled me aside and said, this was just me, not any of the other students. She said, here's what I want you to do. When you finished a story or any piece of writing, I want you to go through and grade each line, either with an A or a B. The A lines are the truly gorgeous ones. The B-lines are the good enough ones. And then, young citizen, I want you to go back and rewrite all the A sentences. Because those are the ones that are about you as some kind of aspiring Olympic skater. Those are the ones in which you're that awful child brought in to play the piano for the adults. They are show offy they're about your ability to get two semicolons and three parentheticals into a <laughs> single sentence and they're they're in service of you they're not in service to the story and really, ever since I, I, for me, the rewriting process usually involves bringing things down. Mm. It's just it's it's something it, – I'm, I'm, thank you, Hilma, for pointing that out because I, I would never show anybody the kind of baroque, wildly overwritten early drafts that I then sort of do my best to wheel down.
0: Yeah, and that's why you're such an amazing writer at that yeah. very core sentence level. Before your MFA and after your BA, you had an experience. You were thinking about what it would take to make – a co-worker pick up a book. And I'm very interested in knowing who that person is that you keep in your mind when you think about your reader.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, oh, I was in my 20s. And I was working in a bar in Laguna Beach, California, a, a, a tiki bar, actually, a tiki motif, which involved the bartenders wearing grass skirts mm. and and lays. Um, I've, I've, I've put my grass skirt away. No one needs to see me in a grass skirt anymore. Oh, God. But at the time, <laughs> the sort of bookkeeper manager of the bar was a woman named Helen, who was, you know, 40s. And she had a difficult life. Her husband had left one day without explanation and a fortune in debts. Of which he had not informed her and she had three children and she got up early in the morning to work in a bakery and she typed manuscripts for writers she did everything she could to just keep it going and she was an avid reader So every night after her long, difficult days, she would get in bed for an hour or two and read. And she was a huge fan of mysteries. And as only a pretentious 20-something in a grass skirt and (laughs) a lay could do, I said, oh, you like mysteries. Have you read... Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment <laughs> and she said no but I will and so am fine and she was, she was a fast reader so it was only a few weeks later that she came into the bar and she said oh I read that Dostoevsky book and I said yeah how'd you like it and she said you know he was a lot better than John Grisham but he wasn't as good as Scott Turow <laughs> And although I didn't agree with her I just I also I just thought how great that she didn't pick up these books with any sense of what she was supposed to like mm. what she was supposed to take seriously and what she was supposed to dismiss and up until then I had been sort of writing I don't know into the ether into the future I didn't know why exactly but i was just doing it and after that i began to think about writing a book that would mean something to helen that would feel like something
0: mm.
1: after these long difficult days of hers and it it helped change things
0: and of course you teach you you're telling your students you're suggesting ways forward for your students. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is there something? Is there a key thing that you tell students to consider, or indeed to disregard?
1: You know, there's not a central key thing. One of the surprises of teaching writing, and I, I, I teach wildly intelligent undergraduates, is that when I started teaching, I had imagined that. My students were going to be just wild in their, in their writing. And it was going to be full of alien abductions and, and spontaneous combustions. And I was going to have to talk them into toning it down a little. And the opposite is true. And it makes perfect sense. I just hadn't thought of it. Most of my students at the beginning are writing in ways that resemble what they've read. And so most of my work with them is trying to talk to them about, let's find a way for you to write the story only you could write in a voice that is particularly yours. And as the semester progresses, ideally, I sort of figure out what each of them is trying to do. I'm not infallible, but I've developed an instinct for looking at a sort of not-there story and pulling out what I think is there. So, a long answer to a simple question. <laughs> there is, I, there is, I don't. I don't have a sort of central principle beyond take the risk— be informed by what you've read, but don't try to replicate it.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about your sexuality, not because it's huh. it's particularly <laughs> relevant to writing itself, but it obviously has informed your subject matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at Home in the End of the World, for instance, where you're writing about the HIV-AIDS crisis. But mostly I want to know about your criminal record. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my, my criminal record, such as it is, is really entirely about going to jail for the actions we performed when I was in ACT UP. It was at a time when, well, first Reagan was president, and then the first George Bush was president, and neither of those guys was really addressing AIDS at all. And so we felt like, well, somebody has to get the word out. So we we went to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel where George Bush was giving a talk and we were dressed as if we belonged in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and all went up in elevators and covered ourselves in fake blood and then came down and sort of, invaded the talk, and no one would get near us because we said, okay, AIDS blood, better stand back. It was, let's just say we were doing what we felt like we had to do, that that we felt like writing letters and being polite was just not going to get us anywhere.
0: The book, At Home and the End of the World, is obviously written in the middle of that AIDS crisis. Yeah. And again, we see now in your brand new book that you are writing about something that indeed we are still now living through. Yeah, Is that a challenge without the luxury of distance, without being able to pull that lens back?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a huge challenge. I, I felt like... I couldn't see how to write a contemporary novel that acted as if the pandemic wasn't happening because it, there's no place in the world where it wasn't happening there was no place, even if you wanted to there's no place to set a novel that did not invoke the pandemic but then but then how do you do that while writing about human beings and not about a virus I didn't want to write about the pandemic. I wanted to write about all of well, my, my small section of all of us who were either surviving or, or not surviving it. And hence the form of the novel, just a day divided into three sections, morning, afternoon, and evening. Morning is before the pandemic. Afternoon is at the height of the pandemic, and evening is—I don't think we can say post-pandemic because <laughs> we're not. But you and I are here in a studio unmasked, and there, there, there are changes. But, mm-hmm. but, yeah, yeah. So that I hoped anyway, these characters would sort of pass through the pandemic and come out the other side, and the book would emphasize their. Lives as affected by something that affected every person on the planet, mm. without being overwhelmed by the virus.
0: I am very interested, and I'm sure many other people must have spoken to you about this. But this use of threes. So, yeah. I mean, obviously you have that in the hours. You have it in specimen days, mm-hmm, and then you have mm-hmm. it again here. And, I, and I'm sure there are lots of things <coughs> I haven't spotted all the way through. But, but all of these different tropes that come together. I'm particularly when. When people speak to you about the hours, and I've seen some, so much kind of very clever literary criticism talking to you about oh, the mm. mill on the floss and George Eliot's mm, influence uh, on this book, uh, the, the, the relationship between the siblings and, and, yeah. and so on. And I really wanted to read it in a way that wasn't about that
1: thank you that's very <laughs> much how i hope i hope it will be read
0: and i mean there's an awful lot of clever reviews out there which are pointing out these things which of course are there and i wonder how Conscious you were. Is the imaginary friend called Wolf after Virginia? Are we really going back to this breaking up into threes because of yeah. your previous work? Are the little lives, the little life that people are living, is is that to do with well the character that was really based on your mother in the hours? Yeah,
1: yeah, that would turn out <laughs> that didn't go over all that well.
0: <laughs> she was not home. pleased.
1: She was not. But ple- why would I think she would be pleased? Um, <laughs>
0: But it's I mean it's absolutely fascinating those relationships that that you you put together and particularly the the sibling relationship yeah. of course when looked at through the through the lens of the mill on the floss but but also the way you put Isabel and and Robbie together but the fact that actually Robbie and Dan are really they yeah. talk about themselves as a married couple yeah, really yeah
1: yeah well you know three is a kind of magic number okay this This will not be visible to anyone listening, <laughs> but, but I'm like I'm, I'm, okay. I'm holding I'm now holding up a coffee cup and a drinking glass. I could take the drinking glass back to New York with me, and you could still draw a straight line between the two objects. Add a third one, and the permutations are, endless it gets a lot more interesting and here's what, the number three keeps turning up not only you know, the holy trinity three acts in a play there's all kinds of funny stuff like if an atom has a nucleus and one electron its behavior is entirely predictable add a second electron three elements and there's no telling what it's going to do
0: and that's what you give us. You give us this book and we don't know yeah. where it's going to go. That's and obviously I'm, I'm not going to put in any spoilers there. But, but what's so wonderful is the finely drawn characters, particularly the children. I found <laughs> Violet extraordinary. And the way that you know how it is that little girls talk and and how they have this kind of relationship with their mother, the way it's so important to them Mm. what they wear, and the sensitivity of Robbie as the gay uncle of knowing what to dress her in. And it's just, and her mother's kind of careless cruelty in dismissing that. Yeah. And it made it so human, so wonderfully, wonderfully human. And 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 I think that for me was was what it was about rather than I don't know clever comparisons with Edith Wharton and The House of Mirth. <laughs>
1: High praise indeed. But
0: there oh. are those comparisons. So yeah. I mean yeah, how yeah, yeah. how mindful were you of those? Not not so much.
1: I I read a lot. A lot of people read a lot and so books that have mattered to me register as visceral experiences the way falling in love for the first time is a visceral experience the way falling out of love for the first time is a visceral experience so i i include references to books i love and you know the hours was obviously very much built around a book i love but I, I don't mean them as sort of more or less than another detail in the world I'm I'm trying to create. I, 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 I sort of live in, well, mild but real terror of, of writing something that depends on someone's intimate knowledge of the mill on the floss.
0: Because Helen... Could enjoy this book
1: exactly. The, the books are still for Helen all these years <laughs> later. Yes,
0: which is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Michael, what's next for you? Um, you've
1: got me there. <laughs> <laughs> no, only in that I will. I will write another novel. I don't. I don't have one ready to go yet. It's. It's one of those things. You
0: were writing a different one before you started oh, this one. Yeah. Are you going to go back to that?
1: Maybe. Yeah. I sh- yeah. I should. I should just say quickly that I was in the middle of a novel when the pandemic struck, and there was really no way to incorporate the pandemic into that novel without it looking incorporated. Like here we are at this awkward party. Oh, here comes Godzilla. What, who who expected that? <laughs> So I put it aside and I don't, you know, it's funny. You...
0: As an interested observer of American politics, might I suggest that if you continue to write in the same way that you're reflecting what we see around us, perhaps your next book might be a novel about a civil war in America? Well,
1: it's interesting that you say that because I, I kind of wonder if one of the reasons I'm not you have to want to write a specific novel, not just a novel. And this isn't exactly conscious, but I, I think I may be waiting until the election in November to see what kind of world I'm writing in. That's a long time to wait, you know. Hey, we I can take a macrame. There's a lot of things I could do. <laughs>
0: we waited ten years for this book, <laughs> <laughs> I'm right and fast. we are so grateful to you thank for it. Thank you, Michael Cunningham. Thank you so much for talking to me.
1: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: The book is called Day. It's published by Fourth Estate, and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks also to the producer Tamsin Howard and to the studio manager Steph Chungu. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.